Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. And here we are at the start of yet another fascinating week in the Independent Republic. The Prime Minister says we are just 38 days away from walking away from Brexit negotiations with the European Union, leaving us with a no-deal deal, deal, uh, which a lot of people think would not be a bad deal at all. The Natural History Museum is worrying that Charles Darwin might have been a racist, absolute and utter madness. Black Lives Matter have announced that they now want to become a political party that stands for election. I can imagine that will go well. Lots of lost deposits coming up. And the COVID-19 madness continues with the latest news that the testing regime might be fueling the fears that things are worse than they really are. We'll be opening the show today with consultant neurologist Dr. Wakar Rashid, who, like me, is concerned about statistics that are being used to wrongly point to increasing infections and justify further lockdowns and corona restrictions. 0344-499-1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by Mail on Sunday economist Peter Hitchens, who this week didn't actually write about the COVID crisis, choosing instead to explore the National Socialists of 1930s Germany. I wonder why. Speaking of undemocratic movements, we will also be discussing the ludicrous left-wing loonies of Extinction Rebellion, who thought it was a great idea to blockade the print plants of several newspaper groups, aside from The Guardian and The Mirror, of course, in order to save the planet. Effectively blocking an article by Sir David Attenborough in The Sun, which was all about, wait for it, saving the planet. 0344 We'll also hear from nightclub owner Donald McLeod about why illegal raves could be stopped if licensed and regulated business could open again. Believe it or not, in Scotland, you know, you're not allowed to play any music in a bar in case people get excited, in case they start singing, in case they start dancing, or indeed in case they start talking loudly. Has Scotland gone completely bonkers mad since I lived there? I seem to remember there were plenty of people having fun in Scotland when I was there. Uh, it seems like nobody's allowed to do it anymore. Uh, and we'll be finding out why the Minister of State for Transport believes that towns and cities in this country are wasting money on pro-cycling initiatives that are punishing car drivers and indeed high street businesses as well. Most of all, though, uh, we need to hear from you, the people that make the independent republic what it is, what you are hearing, what you are doing and where you are going. 
We need to know it all. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. There was a very interesting piece that appeared over the course of the weekend uh, because there was lots of stuff written, of course, about COVID-19 over the course of the weekend, as there always is. Uh, But the one that caught my eye was the one about testing because we heard, of course, and it's being reported all over the news this morning. Oh, my goodness me. The number of people infected by COVID has gone up uh, exponentially into the thousands once more. But at the same time, we've been told by Matt Hancock, while he's concerned about it, he's not that worried. So it seems that an awful lot of younger people are being infected, many of them without any symptoms whatsoever. A lot more people are being tested. uh, So therefore, we know that hospital uh, uh, admissions are not up. Deaths are not up. So what exactly are we worried about? Meanwhile, on top of that, experts from the Oxford University Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine say uh, that there are lots of false positives being found in various tests. And in fact, some tests might be finding traces of the virus, which has already died, meaning that the people who are saying that that they are testing positive are actually not testing positive. Let's talk uh, to Dr. Wakar Rashid, consultant neurologist and uh, specialist in multiple sclerosis. Wakar, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Thank you. Not at all. No, I saw you tweet about this at the weekend, and I thought it would be a good opportunity yeah. to talk to you about sort of where we are and, and generally where we are going, because, of course, at the moment, we are being told that, uh, you know, yes, infections are getting uh, quite high again. Is that of concern? Should it be of concern? But when you put it together with the numbers of testing uh, that, are, that are going on and some of the testing results possibly being false positives, what can we make of it? Okay, so uh, and apologies, uh, Monday morning's probably not the best time to get very scientific. So I'll try <laughs> and make this sort of understandable for mm. your listeners because it's, it's, it's a very important issue. Uh, essentially, the test that is done is something called a PCR test. And what that seeks to do is uh, find fragments of the virus in the sample that it, it receives. Yeah. Now, those fragments may be tiny. And so the test is run repeatedly at increasing concentrations, what's called amplifying or cycles, to try and increase the pickup of the virus. And so the issue, which was really well um, laid out by by the uh, Centre of uh, Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford, is that the amplification, the cycles are are, are enormous. You know, they're 30 plus, which is quite a high number. So it's really a very, very sensitive test that they're running. So it's picking up potentially tiny amounts of um, the uh, the viral fragments. And as you said in your opening, uh, some of these uh, fragments may already have been inactivated and dead. And so the issue is just of the positives, so we, we only get a yes, no answer from the test. Actually, um, on that yes, uh, we're essentially treating people who may have a lot of the viral DNA and may have a lot of symptoms and therefore are going to be infected, the same as people who may have a tiny amount of dead virus who one would have thought would be far less infected. We're essentially giving the same results, but it's a, a huge gap between the two in terms of the scenario. Well, that seems to be the problem. And I think most of us now have a reasonable understanding of the dangers of the virus, that we do behave slightly differently uh, than we used to behave. If you took you know, what we did last year, for example, to where we are now, there's a massive difference in our behaviour. 
Now, there are those who will tell you, um, and I heard somebody last night saying this uh, from the medical community, um, that one of the reasons why the increase in testing has not resulting in an increase in hospital admissions is because of our behaviour. It's because we are social distancing, because we are not crowding into rooms uh, with one another anymore. Um, is that a possibility or is that just kind of more smoke and mirrors? There's, there's several possibilities, but um, and I, I put this out on my uh, my Twitter yesterday evening. Um, we're trying to compare like with like, but mm. we're not. We don't have like with like. So the testing regime, so the number of people who are tested and who's been tested is different now in the last month or so to where we were a few months ago. If you remember, in uh, in March, April, when um, the hospital admissions were at their height, mm. people who were tested were only people really who were coming into hospital right. or who had very significant symptoms in the community. Even then, sometimes they weren't being tested. Right. So we're actually testing a whole different population of people now, and the number of tests has gone up. So there's various credible theories I've seen about why we're seeing so many more test positives and very little in the way of hospital admissions and infection but actually we're trying to compare different things now so trying to compare tests over months is a really difficult thing so i heard in your introduction there's a thought about more uh, young people are getting infected now than before but actually if you think about it in march or april young people weren't really being tested right. for covid before it was only people who were coming into hospital who were very much uh, older people mm. because they were getting more severe symptoms so right. There's a lot of theory, but it's actually hard to prove. And if you think about it as well, um, now, before lockdown, it was said about 10 to 15 percent of people in London had been exposed to the virus. Now, that's a huge number of people. And yes, there were a lot of people coming to hospital with infections and severe infections and sadly dying as well. But if you look at it, they may, it the actual number of people now proportionately coming into hospital with significant infections may not be that different to the positive test because there were so many more infections going on at the height of the actual mm. virus. So I think there's a lot of things on the table we just don't know. We need to work this out because unfortunately, on the basis of these positive tests, which I've already talked about, it's a huge range of people being given a yes answer. We're, we're, we're basing policy on this at the moment. And also, do you think there are people inside the Department of Health, um, Dr. Wacker, who understand that your misgivings and my misgivings are shared by a great many people who want to know exactly how dangerous this, this virus is, who want to know whether it's safe to go back to work or safe to send their kids to school. Um, and the figures, I'm afraid, do not really reveal that to us. All they do uh, is serve to kind of make people more uh, scared, isn't it? I think, you know, the misgivings are shared by a lot of people in the medical profession as well. And, you know, you, you saw the article, you've quoted the article from Professor Hennigan and the team in Oxford. So, you know, there's a lot of medical people who are wondering about how we interpret and use these tests. I've always said, you know, if you have a test, you've got to be able to interpret it. Otherwise, it's a difficult test to do. And you wonder about how useful it is. You've got to interpret any test you do in medicine properly. And so I th I'm sure that there are people in the Department of Health. I'm sure they know this and I'm sure they're working on this because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're experts in the field. I think we, the problem is we've, we've got into a, a bit of a cycle at the moment, I think, uh, within um, policy and within uh, the reporting of policy and so on, where everybody wants to know the case numbers now. They want to know, they want to compare, they want to look and say, oh, look, it's going up compared to June or whatever. But the detail is the problem here. And having understanding of the detail is the issue because, you know, you, you don't 
uh, you've only got a limited time scale. You you may not have the figures presented to you, but you know the amount of testing, say, that was going on in June was was less than it is now, and the the he, people who were getting tested is different now. For instance, it, we we are testing people now. So if you look at Bolton, which has been in the news recently, so they they had a a, a a spike in positive tests. Now, I'm not sure, I've not been able to see how many actual cases that was, but if it's a relatively small number of cases, but proportionately is quite high, there is error there. There can always be error in a relatively small number of patients and, so, uh, and, and positive cases. So we always have to interpret that with caution. But what happens after that? is that once you have positive tests in an area of concern, then you get more people going in testing and you get more, uh, you get the contacts of the positive test uh, cases being tested as well. So mm. you kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of uh, potentially finding more positive cases. But what we don't know is that how effective these people are who've had the positive tests. And that's why we need to know just how positive, if you like, these cases are how much uh, DNA is it? Is it a low positive or is it a high positive? And try and then work out just uh, on the basis of the presence of symptoms and how long ago they had symptoms, how many of these people who've had positive tests actually are at risk of passing the infection on? But this is the trouble, isn't it? And and you said at the start, uh, Wakao, that you know this is not a good time to be getting too scientific first thing on a Monday morning when people's heads might be a little bit fuzzy. But I mean, the problem for a lot of people, I think, and I include myself in this, is that we are bombarded with all of this information. All of these statistics come out. We're not really given the tools with which to interpret them. We don't really know what they mean, except for the fact that we're told it means something bad. And I don't think people are buying it anymore. And I think when people see Matt Hancock, for example, saying testing is the answer, we must test everybody at all times as much as possible and then they see Grant Shapps the transport minister saying well we can't test people at airports because there's not really any point yeah there's a kind of disconnect going on isn't there as I, as I completely agree and as I said I think uh, if you test if, whatever test you do you've got to be able to interpret it correctly mm, right if you're interpreting otherwise what's that the test, point yeah yeah and it can actually do harm uh, so if you do a test and you 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 pick out the wrong sort of interpretation of the result it can be harmful as well so you've you've got to be able to interpret the data that you're given and you know i, I don't think people are doing it maliciously i think it, there is a knowledge gap here because we're learning mm. and you know what's happening and what's you know picked up in terms of the uh, the paper that you, you quote from from oxford is that we've learned a bit more so it it, it, it is clear that this test, the PCR test that has been done, is extremely sensitive. So it is picking up very small fragments, and it is also clear it is staying positive even after the expected infectiousness of somebody. So we would normally consider the virus to be infectious up to about eight to ten days, but this test is staying positive, looking at some papers, many weeks after that. So this has got to be, I'm not saying we shouldn't be testing, but I'm saying is that we should be caveating, we should be so looking at the results in the way of saying, well, you know, perhaps not every one of these positive results is going to result in infection. And if, if you like, the one stable measure we've had throughout this whole um, epidemic 
has been the hospital figures. And I think we really need to be giving much more credence to the hospital figures. So, you know, what uh, um, the criteria for people being admitted to hospital with COVID has been relatively consistent throughout mm. this. And that's been people who've got significant enough infection to warrant assistance with their breathing. So they cannot stay at home uh, because they will be in trouble from a lack of oxygen from breathing problems. That's been the main reason people have been admitted to hospital from COVID. And so that hasn't really changed. And so that would be the figure. And, and uh, I'm not alone in saying this amongst medical profession at all. Uh, that is a figure that you can more usefully, I think, compare over the epidemic. Mm. And uh, so that is a figure I think, which I think is more useful to be looking for if we are seeing spikes or second waves or whatever you want to call it, uh, is looking to see if there's an increase in hospital admissions. Yes. And there doesn't appear to be one. I mean, all the anecdotal evidence that I've seen, uh, the information I get from, from people around the country who either are nurses or who are working with nurses are saying that there is no more uh, uh, admissions, never mind, um, you know, an increase in admissions. There literally aren't any admissions going on at all uh, for COVID-19. And for most of the figures that we get for people who may have died or who may have been uh, on ventilators, they've, they've all been there for quite a long time. You know, they're the people who have been suffering for a while. And so at what point would you say the government should be coming out and actually saying, we actually think that the, the, the risk here is, is becoming quite low. So you're right. I think the hospital admissions over months have been reassuring in the last couple of months in particular. Mm. So if you consider uh, Leicester, for instance, which obviously had uh, uh, an increased set of measures uh, a month or so ago. Yeah. Uh, if you actually look at the hospital admissions, thankfully, they really didn't move. Even, uh, you know, we would expect to see something of a spike a week or two after an increase in, in, in positive yeah. case numbers. And we just didn't see right. that. There was a there was a, a mild increase, but nothing and of course really the government, about. The government presumably will say, oh, that's because we locked it all down. And that was what we managed to survive uh, because we didn't have to admit anybody to hospital because of our action. I'm not sure that's true. So you would expect if there was a, a, a effect of the measures that, that would come through a little bit later, another week or two after the measures, and and that the there should be an increase in hospital activity prior to that decrease. So there's normally about you know a, a week or two lag, mm. uh, and again. It, it just just wasn't really seen and certainly the figures and I, I wrote about this in the spectator as well we just didn't really see that and uh, thankfully the the uh, the hospital admissions remained down i've seen various theories that perhaps it's the young people getting it and they're stronger and fitter but i say again it's very hard to prove that because mm. you know young people just weren't being tested early on so i think you've got to say that um although the positive case numbers are increasing um, you know, you've got to be proportionate in your actions to that, in that we're not seeing an increase in hospital numbers, but we've got to keep very, very conscious and careful so that if we are starting to pick up that increased activity, then it is acted on. But I think that yeah. is a more stable and useful measure. But also, I mean, knowing what we know now about COVID-19, and I'm in no way diminishing how important it is and how dangerous it can be and how deadly it can be. But if, for example, you tracked any other disease in the same way as we're tracking COVID-19, we would similarly be alarmed, I would have thought, by the increases in infection. For example, imagine if you tracked on any given winter, the number of people infected by the common cold. And then you would come out every night on six o'clock news and say, today, 50,000 people were infected by the common cold. And everyone would go, oh my God, we better stay home. Don't go on holiday. Don't go to work. Don't go to school. I mean, we just wouldn't, would we? It's, it's like I say, I think we've, we've 
somehow got into this cycle yeah. of um, testing and reporting testing numbers and so on. And I, I, I recall uh, going back to the early days, there was uh, one of the stated aims uh, from uh, the Department of Health was trying to increase testing numbers and get to a 100,000 figure right. and so on. It didn't seem to me, well, okay, what's the purpose of this? Mm. And so now we're in this cycle of giving data or numbers for the sake of it and then getting frightened right. by the results. I think it was, just to stop Beth Rig- it was just to stop Beth Rigby asking any more stupid questions, I think. I think, you know, I, I sympathise because I think, you know, it, it's political and, and non-scientific trained journalists having to make very, uh, having to ask very scientific-based yeah. questions. And I think it's very hard. And I think, you know, this is why I, I think uh, there needs to be and needed to be a bit of um, uh, sort of scientific basis or knowledge from um, the Department of Health saying, look, the reason we're not going to uh, just test randomly for large numbers that is because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, it's just explaining why you're doing this. To Because, uh, you know, it, it, we're asking political journalists to ask very scientific-based questions. And the, the one fear I have... Uh, going back to a point you just made now is that we are going to come to uh, to autumn winter mm. and we're going to see more COVID type symptoms. And how does this country deal with that and keep going uh, if we're going to get um, a number of positive tests back, but with the flaws that are already mentioned? Uh, on the background of there being increasing respiratory viruses in general. And that's a concern. Yes, absolutely right. And we will always be concerned about it. I just wonder when we pass and cross over the Rubicon into concern uh, versus absolute, you know, blind terror. And I think we should be moving away more from the terror aspect to it to concern. But how about this? Let me leave you with this thought. Uh, Mick has tweeted in and said more people were stabbed over the weekend than died of COVID-19, which is, I'm afraid, correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen uh, various analogies on, on Twitter and that and people saying, well, you know, COVID is infectious. And that's certainly true. And so we should, never should be complacent about this. But as you say, there's a lot of other infections around mm. as well. And so it's getting it into context, being vigilant, particularly about the hospital data. But we do. And I, I do think the test data can be useful. It just needs to be contextualized. Yes. And a bit more detail from that, which can, I think, be done. And I think it needs to be urgently done before the winter uh, increase in symptoms are upon us. Yes, I believe you're absolutely right. Dr. Wakar Rashid, thank you very much indeed. Consultant urologist, uh, specialist, of course, uh, in MS as well. A man who, like me, uh, believes that, yeah, the testing's all very well and the figures are all very well and the statistics are all very well, but they need to be put into context. We're constantly being told you need to put things into context, otherwise if you take them out of context, that's a bad idea. Well, how about this? Tell us how many people are going into hospital. Tell us how many people are dying as a result of being infected in the last month. And we'll know at that point whether or not there's anything to worry about. There are still people claiming they can't go back to work because it's too dangerous. Still people saying they might not want to send their kids to school because it's too dangerous. There's one particular school, which I read about over the weekend, which is going to be asking the kids at the school to change their mask every time they go into the corridor, which means they need six masks per day, which means they need 30 masks per week, which means some ridiculous amount of money is going to have to be spent by the parents in order to make sure that each of those children has six clean masks to take to school every day. It's absolute madness, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The other big story, of course, on the front pages today uh, is Brexit, believe it or not. I know some of you would like to think that it's actually disappeared, but the Express has got Boris, no deal, Brexit is a good outcome. Uh, the Times, no deal can be a good outcome, it's his Prime Minister. And the Telegraph, Johnson, 38 days for a Brexit deal, all we walk. Let's talk to an old friend of ours, Anand Menon, who hasn't, we haven't spoken to much, actually, since the start of all this uh, pandemic nonsense. Anand, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Morning to you, Mike. You all right? I'm very well. Are you still celebrating your uh, football team's uh, accession to the Premier League? Well, celebrations are gen- uh, sort of gradually giving way to terror as we face the prospect <laughs> of Liverpool on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's all very well going. Yeah, we're great. We're back. Oh, ah, OK. Anyway, so I mean, it's a bit like Brexit, isn't it? Because uh, we'd all forgotten about it, to be honest, for quite a long time. And suddenly in the last week or two, uh, we've had uh, Barnier uh, talking about how nobody's been very helpful. Uh, suddenly uh, focuses back on uh, the deal or no deal. What do you make of the story this morning? That There's a there's sort of October the 15th deadline. We love a deadline, don't we? Well, we do. And this deadline makes a bit of sense because it's not a random date. On the 15th, the EU is meant to have a summit. Mm. And I think what the prime minister is saying is we need to have something in the way of an agreement by then so that he can go there, thrash out the final details and then get a deal. I mean, one of the things that's been missing from the Brexit talks because of the pandemic is engagement by the top political mm. leaders. And right. it's only when you get that that you get concessions, and it's only when you get concessions that you're going to get a deal. Right. So as far as you're concerned, um, um, is any kind of deal a preferable to a no deal still? Uh, or is Boris right to say, do you know what? If you can't get your act together, we'll just walk away. Well, I don't think the Prime Minister has ever said that no deal is preferable to a deal. Right. Uh, and I think in that sense, he's right. I think what, what a deal gives us, I think, is at least two things. One, it helps to mitigate the economic impact of leaving. That is to say, for instance, not having tariffs and quotas is better than having tariffs and quotas for trade. But as important, I think, if these talks collapse without an agreement, the danger is then you end up with a period of mutual recrimination between us and the EU where it becomes politically very difficult for us to have anything to do with each other or to collaborate over anything. Mm. And at a time when you have issues like, you know, the newest Russian poisoning scandal, uh, issues over China, it would make more sense if we were in a situation where we were able to cooperate with our nearest neighbours rather than we were at a standoff with them. Right. Are they in the same sort of place that we are, though? Because politically speaking, Britain has been uh, kind of treading water, hasn't it, in terms of everything aside from coronavirus for the best part of the last six months, really. Um, And presumably Europe has got its own problems there and the European Union specifically has got its own problems because aside from anything else, all of our economies are sort of teetering on the brink. Yeah, I think to the extent that Brexit has fallen down the agenda of politics in this country, it's fallen further and faster in the European Union. And that's one of the problems is a lack of attention to it. But yeah, they've got the COVID uh, pandemic to deal with. They're very focused on the economic impact of that. And they've got this massive budget that they're trying to finalise. So yeah, it's absolutely fair to say that they're distracted. Right. And as far as their attitude is concerned, I mean, Michel Barnier uh, came to London last week. He didn't seem particularly... um, contrite about anything but equally he didn't seem anywhere near as aggressive as he used to be he seemed as almost resigned to the fact that you know this is he's finally accepted that it's happening and he's finally accepted that there may not be much he can do to influence the outcome 
Absolutely. I mean, I mean, Monsieur Barnier has been quite negative about the talks for quite a long time. Yeah. What was interesting over the weekend was that David Frost, the UK negotiator, did an interview with one of the Sunday papers in which he echoed that kind of sentiment. He sounded really downbeat and was saying, actually, we're not going to give way. And if no deal is the outcome of that, so be it. So both sides are sounding fairly pessimistic. Now, as we know from the saga of the last three or four years, it it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to come back together at the 11th hour and come mm. up with an agreement. But I think it's fair to say there are real differences of principle that will make that difficult to achieve. Right. And what sorts of pressures do you think Boris is under within the party itself in terms of, you know, um, he more or less made it a very un uninhabitable place for Remainers in the Tory party. So most of the pressure, I'm assuming, is coming from Leavers who want him to get as hard a deal as possible in maybe even a no deal. Um, but the SNP's already kicking off about it. You know, Nicola Sturgeon, in rather unparliamentary language, is calling the Tories a bunch of charlatans. Well, he's coming under conflicting pressure from within his party, I think, is the simple answer, because while you have people like Ian Duncan Smith, who we just heard from, who are pressing for not only no deal, but for unpicking the deal that we have, yeah. which is the withdrawal agreement, there are others, I think, who haven't yet made their voices heard as much, who are slightly nervous about the prospect of no deal, and even more nervous about the prospect of the UK reneging on agreements it negotiated and signed up to only a year ago. Yes, exactly right. So is there any way that you see, for example, the fisheries and the state aid, two of the big issues apparently, uh, which are the main sticking points, ever being surrendered by Boris? Uh, I, well, I, I mean, I'm not sure it's a question of surrender. I can see outcomes on fisheries in particular, less easily on state aid, where both sides give a bit and you end up with an agreement. So if you want to take state aids, for instance, I think the notion that we will abide by EU law and be under the authority of the European Court of Justice is for the birds. Mm. But a notion whereby the EU says, if you are using state aids to undermine competitiveness in the market, we reserve the right to retaliate with tariffs or something like that. Yeah. I can see that being possible, yeah. Right. And, I mean, in terms of what happens on January the 1st, which is always a difficult day to begin anything, really, since everyone's got a massive hangover and it's uh, a bank holiday <laughs> apart from anything else. What do you, if I said to you, look into your crystal ball, Adam, and tell me what it looks like on the M2 going down to Dover, what does it look like? Well, I think, as you said, on January the 1st, it looks very quiet because everyone is off uh, and there'll be far less trade crossing that border on that day. But I don't think there's any doubt that actually either with the kind of deal we're negotiating or without one, there is going to be significant changes to the way we trade with the European Union. And at best, there are going to be some teething problems over the first few days and weeks. And at worst, there's going to be significant disruption for the medium term because there simply isn't the infrastructure in place. And we're used to trading at a volume that the new arrangement is going to make very, very hard to sustain. Right. And since it was the big question of last week, although it now seems to have disappeared into the ether, like all 24-hour stories in this country, it seems to me, Tony Abbott, uh, new uh, Brexit negotiator, is he going to do a good job? Well, he's not a Brexit negotiator. He's going to be a member of the Board of Trade, and he's one of several members of the Board of Trade. But ultimately, uh, it's not going to be down to Tony Abbott, though he might help grease a few wheels, shake a few hands for the government, because he's a former Prime Minister, he has connections. But the most important thing about trade negotiations is going to be what we're willing to offer. And I think we'll find with a lot of trade partners that state aids will be an issue with them too. They're not going to sign up to deals allowing market access if they think the British government is going to unfairly subsidise firms to give them a comparative advantage. So mm. all trade negotiations are going to be about give and take, about compromise. And the other thing worth bearing in mind is I suspect those trade negotiations will become a lot harder 
if we do what some are saying and start unpicking an agreement we signed last year because people will start to wonder whether we'll do that to them. Yes, quite. And thank you very much indeed. Adam Menon there, Director of the UK in a changing Europe, because what has happened today is that Boris Johnson's come out and said uh, that there are 38 days until October the 15th, at which point, if a deal has not been struck by the European Union and the UK, uh, then there will be no deal. I, for one, would be more than happy. Uh, why give them 38 days? Why don't you just give them eight days uh, and cut it back down and make them work for a living instead of actually giving them over a month to work out what they can and cannot do? I'm sure that most of you out there listening to this uh, would be more than happy. And in fact, all of the evidence would suggest that you would be more than happy uh, to just go without a deal. Because at the end of the day, as I've constantly said over the times when we used to talk about nothing else apart from Brexit, that there's always going to be negotiations. It will continue as an ongoing process. There will always be somebody talking about something. There will always be a trade deal to discuss. There will always be a new part of something to negotiate. There will never, ever be a point at which you sign a document and then everything's sorted. There will always be things that you have to, uh, you know, sort of finesse. There will always be things that you have to reintroduce. There will always be circumstances that change because that is the way of the world. Look at what's happened between January and now. We had January 31st, the deadline came, we left the European Union. Then something called COVID-19 suddenly struck the world and everything changed. And now we're sitting here talking about Brexit again as if there was nothing in between. But in fact, there was. So I would say uh, just give them eight days, forget about 38 uh, and leave without a deal. That'd be my suggestion. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how the devil are you? Well, so far, so good. But, Excellent. Uh, pretty miserable about the political and uh, economic and general situation, I'm afraid. Well, it's bad news, isn't it, when the only news you get to talk about outside of COVID-19 turns out to be Brexit, which we'd all got bored with about a year ago. <laughs> yes, it's about to become quite unboring, though, I think. Well, what do you make of that? Let's kick off with that because we haven't. And welcome, by the way, for the first time onto Zoom. So people can now see you in all your glory uh, as well as listening to you. Um, what's, what's your fear about what happens in 38 days then? Well, my fear has been for some time, as you possibly know, I didn't take any part in the referendum or, or vote in it. My fear has been that we were making a very considerable mistake by not following the Norway option, let's say staying in the single market and chucking out all the political rubbish. And I'm sticking to that. I think that when you become what the EU calls a third country, let's say somebody was trading from outside, the consequences are wholly predictable, but could be absolutely enormous. And I've never understood why people didn't look more carefully at the Norway option. See had many attractions, and I, I still treasure a tiny hope that between now and, and December the 31st, somebody will dust it off and say, hey, why don't we do this? Yeah. And what would you see as the advantage of the Norway option then? Well, I say that this, the principal advantage of it is quite simple. You don't have any political uh, control or direct legal control from the European Union. It's obviously a big neighbour. You have to pay attention to it. And if you want to live there, you, you join the single market and you stay in it, as they do, uh, while, say, not having the political interference in their fishing grounds or their oil industry or any other things where it's none of the EU's business. And that always seemed to me to be the perfect compromise between the position we were in and the position that we're going to be in. And I still think so. And I'm, I've just stood a 
amazed at the way so many people just never paid any attention to it or taken it up. No. Well, I mean, most I mean, most of the people that I've seen commenting over the course of the last, say, 24 hours or so, in terms of our listeners, are quite happy to leave without a deal uh, altogether. Um, because I've always argued that in the end, surely we'll always be negotiating at some point with somebody about something. You can't sort of suddenly sign a piece of paper and expect nothing else to happen other than for trade to run very smoothly. You're kind of always going to be negotiating something, aren't you? Well, I suppose so. But I, looking at this particular government, I, I don't any more comfort myself with the idea that we must eventually reach a sensible compromise. I'm not at all sure that they understand how to do that, or indeed, in many cases, they actually know what would happen if they failed to do so. Yes. Uh, I don't know what would happen either, because it's a land of mystery. Uh, once we leave the European Union and leave the single market uh, at the end of this year, which we will in reality, a lot of people think we've left already, but we haven't. Uh, once that happens, uh, maybe half of will be covered in lorry farms, and uh, maybe it will, uh, it, there will be a more or less shut down of large parts of our trade with the European Union, not of, uh, of, of them sending stuff to us, but of us trying to get stuff to them and the resulting chaos which follows. I, I just think that it, it, it's no one, ever since the, 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 the stories of takeover by Dominic Cummings of the Leave campaign and the replacement of what had been a campaign to re-establish British sovereignty with a campaign for, for the wildest notions of free trade, uh, the the leave the whole leave cause has been very different from the one which I thought I belonged to before the referendum happened, and that's one of the reasons why I parachuted out of it. I, I didn't like the look of what was coming. And I yeah. that. but you presumably would still prefer to be out than in, wouldn't you? Well, yes, but I don't think it's it's it's, it's not it's not necessary. As as I say, Norway proves Switzerland proves it in a different way. We can negotiate that. It would take decades, but Norway proves there is a way of taking the economic advantages of the EU without taking the political interference. It's not perfect, but I absolutely promise you that what's coming after, after December 31st won't be perfect either, so that's not really the argument. Well, I suppose not, but I mean, a part of the, the, the big part of the problem is that people have been speculating for weeks and months and years now about what terrors may await us. Um, and generally speaking, on all of the things that they warned about before, they weren't right. So I tend to veer on the side that actually it will probably be a lot less bad than you think it's going to be, um, because up to now, all of the things that we were warned were going to happen and we're going to destroy the country and destroy the uh, environment and destroy the economy haven't happened yet. And you're not allowed to say that's because we haven't left yet. <laughs> well, in that case, they won't say that. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean, though? Well, I know what you mean, and indeed, I, it would be a delight to me if the if the worries which my uh, great friend and ally, the late Christopher Booker, expressed on this, who was one of the greatest experts on the whole European issue, wrote the book on it, uh, it and knew more about it, I think, than any anyone else living. Uh, I'd be really pleased if his worries turned out to be unjustified. But I have to say, I think. Christopher understood very clearly what was going on, and if he thought uh, that the the, the the plunging out of the single market, without uh, as as we appear to be planning to do, uh, was going to be a disaster, then I'm inclined to think that he might have had a point. It's all prophecy is dangerous, uh, but and he's now not around to redouble it because, alas, he, he died last year. But it, it is it is the case uh, that he who really really understood this issue and had written many many books about it. 
thought that leaving the single market and becoming a third country was hugely problematic. And I, I have to say, I have to respect that. Mm. And as far as the kind of the union is concerned, what's, what are your thoughts about that? Because obviously one of the things that, that we are told today could become a problem is the Northern Ireland situation uh, regarding, you know, freedom of movement of goods and services and all the rest of it. But also you've got Nicola Sturgeon up in Scotland. You've got the Welsh uh, Assembly uh, over in, uh, in, in Cardiff, both kind of um, agitating, if you like, against almost all government policy now. Um, and will there be a price to pay for Downing Street on that in terms of the way that the, uh, the, the union will be maybe potentially broken up as a result of how we leave the EU? Well, this has always been a crack into which the European Union could insert a lever. And the, the breakup of the United Kingdom was actually one of the consequences of our joining the European Union, which doesn't really like to have uh, rival federations on what it regards as its territory. There was a huge competition between the Federation of the United Kingdom and the Federation of the European Union. But what the, the, the particularly Scottish independence is largely about is, the, is Scotland switching fealty from, from London to Brussels. And the whole, the, the whole creation of devolution, largely by New Labour, but not really fought on principle by the Conservatives, was a response to the, to, to the loss of sovereignty of this country to the European Union over many years. I'm not sure that can be reversed. As for the position in Northern Ireland, I'm certain it can't be reversed because what this country actually did in 1998 was sign a surrender to the provisional IRA, and which will ultimately come fully into force. And Northern Ireland is, is very much a, uh, a, a provisional, uh, to use an appropriate word, a provisional mm. member of the United Kingdom. I don't think it can last. We're just losing you a little bit there, Peter. But but let's get let's get off the subject of, of the European Union. Let's get back uh, to uh, the matters at hand, because over the course of the weekend, there was some interesting stuff written about the testing procedures that are currently under uh, undergoing in the country in terms of the fact that more and more people are being tested. We've got a figure of more and more infections, uh, people saying it's alarming. Now we've got the biggest number of infections in the thousands since May. Um, what we can say, though, um, is that an awful lot of the testing is responsible for an awful lot of the results that we're seeing, which is what you've always said anyway. Well, yes, I, this, this morning I bung in a question to the Department of Health uh, saying, well, could you please give me the figures or the numbers of tests which have been taking place since late August uh, for each day, the numbers which came back positive and the numbers which came back negative and the others which were discarded and excluded for whatever reason. And I'll be very interested to see that. But I can't really believe that a jump in so-called uh, cases uh, that was recorded last night uh, could happen without some sort of major change in the way in which this thing is being recorded. I expect strongly that the government has stepped up the amount of things to well, I think there's no doubt about that. But also, interestingly enough, they've now started to, or certainly some medical people have started to sort of weed out uh, what's going on here. And they've started to echo your words, which are that one, yes, there are more people being tested. Therefore, yes, there are more people testing positive. But equally, those people are not necessarily ill. And we know, for example, from the Leicester lockdown, that there were no additional hospital admissions, despite the fact that they had a rampant uh, number of, uh, of, of people testing positive. We also know that of the last, say, month or so, we have not had any numbers of deaths increasing or any numbers of hospital admissions increasing. So surely the government has to now put all of that into context. Well, you would hope so. <laughs> but the people who really need 
British context, the, the large majority of the British media, particularly the BBC, you can listen to major BBC programmes, such as the Radio 4 Today programme, and you wouldn't get any sense at all that anybody working there had any idea that these were interesting questions. It doesn't seem to cross their mind that more tests mean more cases. It doesn't seem to cross their mind to wonder what a case means. Uh, I, I, I was supplied by a, a correspondent with a number of graphs last week showing the the, the paralleling but the number of tests and the number of deaths. There's no relation between them. And the number of people going to hospital is tiny. And so the whole idea of, of saying that a large number of tests means that we're on the, on the edge of a, a terrible new outbreak of, 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 of death and misery is simply false. But you wouldn't know it from reading many newspapers, and you certainly wouldn't know it from listening to or watching the coverage of the main broadcasting organizations in this country. And this is absolutely disgraceful. I say to my uh, fellow journalists, what is it that you're doing? Did you leave your brains somewhere? Uh, can you remember where it was? And if you can't actually be basically skeptical and critical and mistrustful of government state, what are you doing in the trade of, of journalism anyway? Uh, you're, you're not suited to it. I, th I think this has been one of the greatest failures of journalism uh, that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And a, a totally disgraceful one. I look forward next March to everybody in, the, in my trade congratulating themselves on what a wonderful job they did when they did nothing of the kind. The only, the only awards they deserve are awards of shame. Yes, you're absolutely right, Peter. I mean, I'm like you, similarly um, I'm taken aback because I would never normally be critical uh, of my fellow colleagues and people that work in the business that we are both in. But I have to say that ever since, really, the referendum, I've been quite taken aback and staggered by the bias that's been shown by the BBC, which they're now admitting uh, even amongst themselves, uh, the bias that's been shown by Sky Television uh, and even ITV in the form of Robert Peston, the idea that they are somehow anti-government and yet they don't ask the right questions. And you do wonder why that is, because they seem to have moved now from uh, uh, the, the, the list of deaths being the highest in the world and how terrible it all is, to now that they seem like encouraged by the fact that infections are up, like it's a good thing. Well, I know. I, it is very difficult to explain, but I think uh, I'm trying at the moment, uh, I'm trying to write something about what is exactly is going on. And I think the real problem is that quite a lot of people like being afraid. Uh, quite a lot of people like handing over responsibility. They don't like taking it. And fear is a wonderful opportunity for doing for doing that. If you're sufficiently afraid, uh, then you've got an excuse to run to mummy. And basically, a large part of the population in this country has run to mummy. And mummy turns out to be Matt Hancock, uh, which is not necessarily an attractive prospect for some of us. Uh, and that's what they've done. They've, 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 they've found that they, they, they don't really like being free. They don't really like being free to question. They don't really like uh, having independent lives they like being told what to do and the, 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 it is a minority of people you know I mean, this is the question i know you you disagree with me about this and that's why i think we should discuss it the question of these muzzles that people are being made to mm. wear uh, increasingly with uh, another case which I, I only just saw on twitter a, a man who appeared from all one can see to have been behaving perfectly normally being handcuffed in a supermarket car park about four police officers for not wearing a muzzle and the scenes in in Victoria, in Australia, and particularly in Melbourne, when there was a, a small protest against this last Saturday, was absolutely appalling, especially when one remembers that the state of Victoria is basically has the same legal and political system as we do. Mm. It's, it's now something rapidly approaching a dictatorship in which the, the, 
the state prime minister is ordering people to stay at home for most of their lives and uh, and sending people round to burst into the homes yeah. of those who protect. Yes, no, I saw I saw the pictures from uh, from Victoria of the police officer seemingly putting a mask on a protester yes. um, without their kind of um, um, and, and without their permission, effectively. Yeah, well, they, this this is I, I said this is not about it's not about health. This is about fear and power, and I think those those moments illustrate this. And I, I I do draw people's attention to the the pictures, which in fact my newspaper, to its great credit, originally published some years ago of the prisoners of Guantanamo uh, who've just been unloaded from the plane, kneeling in chains mm. in their own chances. You look at those pictures, and what do you see? Uh, those Guantanamo prisoners who were being held wholly unconstitutionally, extraordinarily, um, and, and still, to me, very wrongful behavior by the United States, what were they wearing, apart from the orange jumpsuits and the goggles and all the rest? They were wearing those little blue muzzles over their mouths. Uh, can anyone tell me that uh, anyone had heard of COVID when Guantanamo was set up? Mm. And they were there. They knew what they were there for. They were a symbolic gagging, and that's what they were wearing them for. And I think people should look at those pictures and wonder how it is that exactly the same pieces of, of pale blue cloth have turned up now, and they're putting them over their mouths. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, funnily enough, uh, I haven't checked out. I've seen the, the, the video on Twitter. I haven't actually looked at it of the guy being arrested in the supermarket. But there, I'm always slightly wary of the stuff that appears on Twitter without checking it out. Because, of for course. example, the one of the guy who was being sort of manhandled on a train uh, up north somewhere by a police officer um, who was complaining that he didn't want to wear a mask. Apparently, there had been a report, according to the police. Now, you could say to me, well, we don't believe a word the police say. But according to the police, there had been a report that this guy was spitting at people. Therefore, you could understand understand why they were on the train now um i had my first taste of it uh, you may be interested to know uh, last thursday i took the train into work i took the tube into work and i walked through um the ticket barrier with my phone because my phone is my facial recognition scenario which gets me through the barrier um and there were two police officers standing on the other side uh, uh, who said uh, excuse me sir do you have a mask and i said yes i do i'll be putting it on when i get on the train and one of them muttered as i walked away you should be wearing it in the station to which I said, well, I'm not going to. And I just kept walking. And they didn't come after me. But as far as I know, there's no um, absolute law which says you have to wear one in the station. I don't, I'm quite happy to wear one on the train, but not on the platform. Oh, you, you're, I'm afraid you're dealing with an expert here. Uh, alas, the law does now say that you should wear it in the station. Except no, really? in Wales, where it's, it's only on the, the train. Uh, and and they, they, the, you talk about the Merseyside episode. And the police did indeed put out two statements, one that there had been reports of him spitting on other people and others had been reports of him coughing. And I, I wrote to them to, on Twitter and said, which is, which is it? I don't think I've had a reply. Right. Uh, and it was also interesting in the, the scene that was recorded was there was no sign of the officer reproaching the man uh, for having coughed or spat over passengers or even raising the issue. He right. was totally concentrating on these he was wearing the muzzle and the other passengers who if he had been doing this revolting thing would surely have been joining in on the side of the police officer were not saying oh, that disgusting man was coughing on the other passengers they were saying to the police officer what exactly thing right so although we of course we haven't seen everything i i think um so far it, it does look to me as if something very heavy handed was going on remember this is a police force which not very long ago was under severe criticism because it just doesn't bother with things like burglary and car theft and, uh, and no longer patrols the streets now seems to be joining in with immense enthusiasm in handcuffing citizens who will not wear 
Space muscles. I, I, I don't find that particularly reassuring. No, I don't. No, I, t- no, I actually, I, I agree with you. I mean, I can't imagine a scenario whereby three years ago you and I could have had a conversation uh, in a pub uh, in which we would have said, um, "Oh, look, there's a guy coughing over there. You better call the police." <laughs> it doesn't no. really make a lot of sense, does it? No, it doesn't. It's a complete change in the nature of things. Uh, talking to, to some friends the, the other evening about this, and one of them said. Now, for, for large parts of this year, I've been afraid to go out in case I, say, got in trouble with authority. This is an extraordinary law by actually a, 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 a former criminal lawyer. Right. And very, absolutely and totally against against crime and not being planned to commit. So suddenly becoming afraid of being picked up for something which has suddenly become an offence. It reminds me also of some of my trips, particularly to the People's Republic of China, uh, when I went to, to Xinjiang to see what was happening to the Uyghurs, which is now a huge issue, wasn't yeah. much known about. And it did feel, particularly in the city of Urumqi, a, a great sense of nervousness that whatever you were doing, although it was entirely legal, and I was there legally, I hadn't broken it, at any time, I didn't want to attract the attention of the police in case they decided that for some purpose of theirs, I was uh, I, I was someone they could pick up. It was a similar sort of nervousness has now begun to creep in in this country. Well, this country should not feel like the People's Republic of China. Uh, and half the point of being British is that you, is, is you, you don't live under the circumstances where you have to be afraid of authority. Authority really should be afraid of the people. That's the only proper arrangement. And that's what's shifting now. People are becoming afraid of and far too obedient uh, to arbitrary authority. You, you know the Milgram experiment, the, yeah. the great experiment where people were persuaded to give other people electric shocks because authority told them to do so. In a way, what's going on is this country is being subjected to a huge, great Milgram experiment in which the government is finding out just exactly how obedient we are. If they suddenly said that all COVID viruses floated at three foot six inches or they'd probably say a metre above the earth and we all had to go on our hands and knees, how many people would obey? Yeah, well, that's what I find staggering. And yet, I mean, we're out of time, so we can't get into it in a big way. But and yet, if you are, if there are enough of you and you wish to perform some act of civil disobedience, such as bamboo chaining yourself to uh, some gates or a lorry or something to stop newspapers coming out, that's okay. You can do that. I think it's the right sort of disobedience it is, yeah, otherwise not. No, quite. Exactly. Peter, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. And good to see you as well. Peter Hitchens on Zoom for the first time, a Mail on Sunday columnist, uh, man who says, as I do, what has gone wrong with the people of this country? Because in the end, it's the people who run the country, not the government. And if people are actually genuinely frightened to go out because they're worried they might be breaking the law, then surely there's something wrong with that, isn't there? For heaven's sake, we need to get back to work. We need to get back into the city. We need to stop doing what we are told every single second of every single day, because the more that you do that, the more that you will be told what to do. That's the way it works. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, it is that time. Uh, You might be sending your kids back to school even as we speak, or they may even have gone back to school even as we speak, but we're still doing a bit of homeschooling because some uh, of my children certainly are still not at school yet. They're going back on Wednesday. Um, And I've got to say, homeschooling has become such a success that we thought we'd just keep doing it anyway because it's kind of interesting. You learn about stuff you didn't know much about. Now, it turns out that today uh, we're going with a little bit of a newsy feel because apparently it turns out that uh, Andy Warhol's 1985 print of Queen Elizabeth 
Elizabeth II is going to be auctioned at Christie's in London. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, Jackson Pollock's uh, painting, The Red Composition, is also going on for sale in New York. There's going to be millions and millions of pounds made uh, by the sale of these two paintings. And we thought, who better to talk to than Alex Proud, entrepreneur and also owner, owner of Proud Galleries here in London. Alex, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon to you, although I've got to say my, my experiences of, uh, of homeschooling sound far worse than yours. <laughs> Listen, I'm not claiming that I've done anything good by homeschooling people, in, in particular my own children. But what we have done here is every day at 12.30 after the news, we've covered all sorts of interesting things like electromagnetism, the northern lights. We've looked at uh, the cycles of the moon. We've looked at how, you know, electricity works. We've done all sorts of really interesting things. So it's quite nice to actually talk about something a bit artsy, really. Fabulous. Excellent. Now, Andy Warhol is a guy that I actually used to see on a regular basis because I lived in New York in the 80s and he used to just walk around the city, as, as a lot of celebrities did in those days, because New York was a place where nobody really noticed. They didn't care. You know, I used to see people like Carly Simon walking down the street or, you know, Burt Reynolds. And, and I, I used to see I, I once stood behind Andy Warhol in a queue for the cinema, but I can't remember what the film was. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's, it's sad that sort of because um, London used to, when I first moved to London back in sort of the early 90s. I mm. kind of got the back end of that. I remember I lived in a in a sort of six-floor dive in Hampstead. There were still dives in Hampstead yes. back in those days. Yeah. They don't I grew up in one. Uh, and and, <laughs> and you, you still see everyone walking around then, and, and no one hassled anyone. And it was it was rather lovely. And you go to the pub, and they'd be there. And that, that kind of world has rather disappeared because everyone's so rarefied and up their own uh, um, that, 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 that we never see anyone anymore, yes. which, which is a shame. It is a shame. It's far too expensive for the likes of you and I now to even afford to buy a, a garage there, never mind a house. But, I mean, he's a fascinating character, Warhol, because he sort of came from quite humble beginnings, I think, in Pennsylvania. He became this kind of, I suppose, poster child for, you know, pop art, didn't he? I mean, there were a few others like him, but he was the one that everybody would be able to name. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's particularly interesting because, you know, it, it obviously... Uh, precludes the, the, the culture that, that, that now dominates uh, well, Britain and many other countries, whether it, you know, of, of instant fame, of, of, of all the, the TV shows uh, that, that exist to make unfamous people famous for 15 minutes. Yeah. And, and this all predates that. And it's quite interesting in a way because, you know, obviously that was in the 60s and he talked about that concept of 15 minutes of fame and he, he was obsessed with the media and how it presented people in many forms. And obviously he, he did everything from film to art to silkscreen prints. He was, he was multi-talented. And yet we don't then see that, that world come into existence, what, till Britain's got talent and everything else starts in the late 90s or mid-90s, doesn't it, where, where we start to see that world. And now we live slam-bang in the middle of it. You know, I mean, he died back in 87. Right. You know, and, and I, I wonder what he would have made of it all, um, because this was... I suppose his his fantasy world, this world where where anyone from any background can become famous, yeah. and it tends to be for not much longer than fifteen minutes before they disappear again. I mean, one of the things I've really noticed when I was living in the states was that there was this fascination with fame in a way that we haven't had it here, in the sense that you could be at a party and you could be with anyone who was there that was famous for any reason. You know, somebody might be there because they were a mass murderer, but they'd get invited to the party because they were famous. You know, and they'd come out of prison now, or somebody well, else who was famous for having an eating disorder or somebody else who was a famous actress or a model you know but if, as long as you were famous they didn't care what it was that you were famous for well i think you know and it, it's strange because you know I, I think that world is is fascinating because it's obviously when um, disciplines sort of cross over and 
filmmakers meet photographers meet artists meet models meet you know whoever or as you said meet criminals and, yeah. and we saw that a little bit um yeah recently it was being reported about the craze and all their contacts with various lords it was there was a book that came out last month i can't remember it yeah. all about how how much the craze got invited to the lords to meet various conservative lords um you know and and, and that that world is fascinating cross-pollination and and I, I mean again going back to sort of the the early 90s the, the strange thing was i'm sure you remember this with london back then was because there were far fewer places to go out to you know that the london had exploded into shoreditch and everywhere else with thousands of wonderful restaurants and, and that is a, a great thing i mean i love the fact that london has a, a much wider a selection of places to go to but back then in the in the early 90s there were only a few bars and there was only you know the atlantic the one nightclub that stayed open right. late and and everyone went to those places so london used to be more like that and and i don't know it's, we always look back back and think we've missed something and and i because i think you're right i think there's some there's, there's something quite joyous when you see that world of, of creativity and i think that's why london exploded in the 90s because we had that in London for the first time, and it and it created a really unique, unique feeling, which I think has gone a little bit now because London's just so huge. Yes. There's just so many places to go, and you know, you, someone could be out in Shoreditch, someone else is in Surrey, someone's in Chelsea, right. and now you know, um, I'm down in South London. I mean, it, it's wonderful down in South London. Mm. It's completely changed, and it's a positive thing. But but you miss something, and I think that that, like you said, New York within Warhol's era, and and London when Cool Britannia happened in the nineties. Yes, you get. You moments when 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 arts cross-pollinate and create something really wonderful yes absolutely right and of course he had a brief and, and sort of um, reasonably good foray into the musical world he had the velvet underground who he kind of adopted who became uh, very well known and are still sort of seen as a bit of a cult band he designed sticky fingers that famous rolling stones um, album cover with the with the actual zip on the trousers which i think won a grammy award you know he was a very uh, switched on guy and i mean i'm just looking to see when his last painting sold 2013 he had a painting uh, sell for 105 million dollars so you know it's not bad is it it's extraordinary. I mean, I suppose when we get to those massive prices that are now made, uh, we, we need to bear in mind that, and, and this is quite, the, most of that is utterly corrupt um, money yes. from places like Russia and the Middle East. Right. That it's trying, and it goes into a bonded warehouse in Switzerland and no one ever sees the damn thing. And right. actually, um, it's, it's quite disgusting and it's quite ugly and horrible. And, it, and it's, it's, it's something I think that, that, that is awful, you know, because obviously at that level, museums can't afford to buy these mm. things anymore. This is just an oligarch who has probably ripped the hell out of his own country and, and he has to park the money in a safe place. So mm. you get, and, and you get the very greatest stuff like people like Warhol or Liechtenstein or whatever else. And it goes through these insane amounts of money. But, you know, I don't think that's a particularly good thing. Um, although it's great if, if it keeps people interested. And if, if the press reporter and some young kid somewhere suddenly becomes interested in art, well, you know, then it, that, that, that's hopefully a positive side effect. Yes, exactly right. And I mean, I suppose, I don't know whether it would be right to say his, his Campbell soup cans are the most famous painting or picture. It's almost like a screen, it's a screenshot, isn't it? It's not really a painting as such. It was sort of a, um, it was a printer-inspired uh, uh, painting, really, in the same way that Marilyn, the four Marilyn, is the same kind of idea. Well, and isn't there a story? I think uh, didn't he pay his gallerist uh, fifty? He wrote out a check for fifty dollars, didn't he, for, yeah. for coming up with the idea, which is rather wonderful. Bearing in mind that's probably one of the most you know outside 
the Mona Lisa and a, <laughs> a few impressionist paintings. That's probably one of the most iconic images. And and also, I think what what's great with, with Warhol, and this is the really interesting thing, is if you look at things like the, the Campbell Soup or or uh, Elvis Presley's a gun gunsling or whatever else, you see that that is in almost every form of imagery that you see in advertising yes. and design. It's everywhere. And if you what's well, really fun thing to do, you know, going back to the sort of educational slant of, of what you're doing, the afternoon pieces. Yeah, look up a few of Warhol's pieces on the internet and then for the next week, open your eyes to advertising and to design and when you walk around London or wh- wherever you are, you'll see the echoes of that in yes. everything. And every graphic designer is influenced, consciously or subconsciously. Yes. And, and, and that's the real uh, effect of Warhol. He changed the way everything is designed and looks and, and, it, and in, a, in a brilliant way. Of course. And, and I suppose knowing him as we do and as we did, he wouldn't have objected to that, people ripping him off, because he believed that nobody really owned anything. And, and he's right. They're, they're, you know, I think when, when you see people, you know, these ridiculous sort of court cases about uh, a piece of music and five bars or another thing, it's ridiculous. Mm. I mean, what is it? There are only six chords, whatever there is, and everything is ripped off from everything. Everyone is inspired by everything. And I think Warhol's completely correct. I, I think art should always be uh, influenced. As long as it's influenced, it's not straightforward ripping someone off. It's, it's, it's fabulous. And, I, and, I, and I, I really enjoy that. And I, I think everyone should, I think, you know, so much of pop music so so much to classical music right. and you know if, and when you listen to, to modern music now much of it will have been inspired by music that came, comes from the 70s or the 80s whatever mm. it is or um, and, and when you listen to you know when, when rap reuses all the chords from other songs I think that's fantastic I love the cross pollination mm. I think I think the world is a richer place for it Yes, absolutely right. And uh, and as if to sort of to, to, to draw him in even further to the kind of the, the American culture, somebody tried to kill him in 1968. Uh, some crazed woman uh, shot him twice. And people said, actually, that he never quite recovered from that. And when he, when he eventually did die, I seem to remember he went into hospital um, for some kind of operation which got a bit botched. And he had some kind of yes. intestinal problem, which kind of reverted back to when he was shot, right? Yes, no, 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 he had, I think in the end, he, he was his heart gave way, yeah. I mean, which is it was a classic shock reaction. And you know, it's sad. Uh, it's sad in America that that business of you know, so many people seem to there, there are so many. I mean, obviously, just too many bloody guns in America, aren't they? Cause, well, yeah. You know, when you you know, you always think. I always look back and think about John Lennon when he was shot. He was still producing great music, and you always go, "My gosh, it's not just." I mean, the sadness that he was married and and had children—that's awful. But but the world lost perhaps another five great mm. albums. You know, imagine mm. if we'd had another Imagine or another whatever. He wrote. He was still writing fabulous music, and 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 then, and it's so sad when, when we lose uh, a genius. I I hate that. Mind you, I. <laughs> I also think sometimes when you see greying old pop stars, you wonder whether they should have gone crazy. <laughs> well, there is an argument certainly for that. We, we shall leave the, those people alone who uh, we, we are both talking about. Let me ask you a final question, Alex. How is the business? Because obviously you're in what would normally be a very kind of busy part of London, uh, but which isn't particularly busy at the moment. No, and and I'm 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 angry. I'm really furious with companies like Google and Facebook are trying to be all trendy and going, "Oh, you don't need to come back to work for two years." And you're like, "What? Just so you look good with your employees?" But in fact, you just put five pubs, a sandwich shop, and the local boozer out of business because that's ten thousand employees in King's Cross who aren't coming back for two years. And and it's it's frustrating because I think you know Central London. If you come to Central London, there's sanitizers everywhere. Everyone's cleaning, and and the other big key thing is if you're not vulnerable you know the, the, the key 
figure right now is three people died yesterday. I don't care if 3,000 people are infected. Mm. You know, the point is, protect the L, protect people with diabetes, but beyond that, the rest of us should just get on with life. But also, yeah, exactly. But also, I've made this point for about a month now, saying, for God's sake, you know, what you don't want is a world full of people who literally don't go anywhere. And all they do is they sit around at home telling everyone how great it is. I'm meeting the government minister um, 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 this afternoon um, on behalf of the NITAM industry to, you know, to just say, for heaven's sake, young people want to go out and have fun. They don't die of this disease. For young people, for the majority of young people, it's no worse than flu. But if you don't reopen nightclubs, they're going to go out to illegal raids where the only people who make money are drug dealers. And yeah. there aren't security guards. And we don't, you know, for example, in my venues, we use the same fogging systems they use in the tube, and it stops any infections for a month. We use that weekly. We, we change the air every 10 minutes. We upgrade our ventilation. You know, it's, it's pretty damn safe. And I, I want the world to reopen just because I, I can't bear walking around central London. Well, I like being able to walk into my favorite restaurant in Covent Garden and sit outside. Without having to book, that's fun. But beyond that, it's a bloody disaster. And I know. You know, and when November the first comes, and suddenly we, you know, you and I are old enough to remember Thatcher and three million unemployed, and what that looked like with the toxic yeah. riots. And yeah. when we go to five million unemployment, and it's cold in November, and furlough ends, and suddenly it's not so fun sitting around in your garden getting paid to do nothing. I, I'm really worried that, that, that suddenly the phony will end, and suddenly this will all feel very w- real, and we'll start going. What on earth are we doing? No one's really dying anymore. Let's get on with life and get back to normal. But, I mean, my restaurants, thank gosh, we, we, we're doing this Denise Van Alton show, the Cabaret All-Stars, and she's fabulous. And she we is. People, yeah, and we people travel in to see it. And we're, we're actually, you know what, we're doing really well. The, the restaurant's doing well. I mean, my clubs can't open. But, but the restaurant's always good, and people love coming out. And I tell you what, after all these months, seeing people happy and smiling and, and, and laughing as, as she sings and makes jokes, it's... it's Come. It's, it's life affirming, isn't it? It's actually life Very affirming because right. you, you think and to so yourself. Many people come up and say that they they just go, "Thank you, I needed." You know, people. One couple came. It was wonderful. Uh, a chap in a wheelchair and his girlfriend, and, and they went. They had a dreadful lockdown, and the guy came up and said, "Tonight actually re reignited our marriage, and we, we we wanted to thank you. This has made lockdown okay." And you have wonderful moments like that. So yeah, let's all get Brilliant. out and start enjoying the greatest city in the world. It's still there, but. If we don't look after it, it won't be here for much longer. No, I totally agree. Alex, well, listen, I can finish you off with a great little quote here from a tweet from Cosmo, who said, Alex Proud was our favourite expert on four rooms on Channel 4, knows his stuff and helps a lot of struggling artists. Top bloke, there you go. you got a fan. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Listen, I'll I'll, I'll come and buy you a beer one of these days. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, Alex Proud there from uh, Proud Galleries, of course. Uh, A man that speaks an awful lot of sense, like all proper Londoners. He wants London back. We want London back. I know some of you listening to this will go, oh, here he goes, going on about London again. It's not just London. If you live in Manchester, you want Manchester back. You want Leeds back. You want Glasgow back. You want Edinburgh back. We need it all back, don't we? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.